You are listening to a message from Adam Reardon at Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois. At Redemption Church, we are all about introducing people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you would like more information, check us out online at redemption.cc. Now stay tuned for today's message. Well, hey, we're in a, a series called uh, Game Day, and for the last uh, several weeks, uh, we've been, been talking about uh, really the gospel. What does it mean uh, to know Jesus and to follow him? What, what does it mean for us uh, as believers uh, to live our lives following after Jesus? And uh, last week, I told you that this week, we were going to spend some time specifically uh, looking at uh, how we plan to live that out as a church. And so uh, I wrote that message, and it was awesome. And, and if you come to uh, the, uh, the Discovering Redemption class, you'll get to hear uh, parts of it. But this week in my own quiet time, as I was just going before the Lord, uh, trying to prepare for this Sunday, uh, do kind of just the, the events that happened in the world, that message changed a little bit. Uh, uh, in fact, it changed a lot of it, but I think it still uh, answers some of the questions that we were looking at. In fact, uh, one of the things that, that happens in my own life from time to time is a, a church planter, is a guy who's gone all in to see uh, the gospel and the kingdom of God just saturate uh, Boone County. I want to see lives changed by Jesus. I want to see uh, families get saved. I want to see marriages get healed and restored. I want to see neighborhoods get changed by the power of Jesus through the Holy Spirit and God's people advancing the kingdom. I want to see all that stuff. And yet at the same time, this week is, has been a difficult week uh, in the sense that as a nation and in the world, we've, we've witnessed horrible, horrible activity that is a tragedy with hundreds and hundreds of victims. And see, what happens is, at least in my own mind, I, I, can, I begin to focus on that stuff and think about those things. And I think what can happen in your life and my life is uh, really two things happen. We can look at the, the evil and the wickedness in the world and we can just kind of feel defeated. Uh, you can kind of just go, hey, this is a dark place with, with wicked things, and what in the world could I ever do about it? Or we can dig in. I think we can begin to open our Bibles and, and look at who Jesus is, and as we understand who he is, we realize that we're not helpless, we're not hopeless, we're not just victims, but the, the, the he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. In fact, that uh, when things like this happen, I think it's actually a reminder for us uh, that God has placed his people here to push back against the darkness. That, that we don't get the excuse just to kind of fold up and give in and say, hey, it's too hard, it's too dark, it's too wicked, uh, but rather that we shine like light in the darkness and the light shines the brightest when the darkness is at its darkest point. And what's interesting to me is, is if you've really paid attention uh, throughout this week is, is there's been conversation and debate and name-calling and conspiracy theories and all this kind of stuff. There's really two myths that our culture will, will always kind of cling to or go to when tragedies like this happen. Because the, the big question, the big question, right, is why? Why did this happen in Las Vegas. Why? And everybody wants to know why. What was, what was the motive? What was behind it? What, why? And here's what I would suggest to you. Odds are you will never find out why. And even if we did find out why, the answer to that question would never satisfy us because it would never make sense. Uh, because there's, there's things in this world that just don't make sense sense and they can't just be rationalized which here's here's the the reason that we get to this is because there's these two myths that we come to especially when things get hard and tragic uh, the first myth is this we believe other people are the problem so if you've been paying attention uh, to the debate uh, the debate is who's who's the real problem in, in all of this and so uh, we, we think if other people are the problem in the world then the answer is to isolate and separate right that's why we put locks on the windows locks on the doors we have fences on our yards because if we can keep the wrong people out and let the right people in then the world would be a better place that's why we install filters on the internet so that's why we choose our friends closely because if we believe that people are the problem then we just feel like if we, can, if we can surround ourselves with the right people and stay away from the wrong people, we'll be okay. And even if you pay attention this week after the shooting in Las Vegas, it's people, right? The liberals are the problem, and the liberals are the problem to the conservatives, and the conservatives think the liberals are a problem, and NRA is the problem, and people who want gun control is the problem. Everybody's just trying to find other people 
to blame. And if we could find the right people to blame, then we could do something about those people, then the world must be a better place. But that's myth number one, that we think other people are the problem. I see myth number two is the myth that at our core, we are good people, we just happen to mess up from time to time. See, isn't that really the question that we've been asking this week is what went wrong? Where did he go wrong? What broke down in his life? What was the problem of the shooter? Because we think that inherently everybody is good, and yet we just mess up from time to time. In fact, the famous psychologist Carl Rogers expressed this thought that is predominant in psychology, and it shaped our view of man throughout the last century or so. He said that basically every single one of us is good. Our main problem is that we have lost touch with our inner goodness, and oppressive or distorting social societal structures have obscured us in our goodness. So this is what Carl says. Carl says that every single one of us is good, but there's these outside forces. Maybe it's the environment you were brought up in. Maybe it was uh, things going on in your life. Maybe it was things that were done to you that were all good, but because of different structures and things, what happens is from time to time we lose sight of our brokenness. Or or we lose sight of our goodness because we focus on our brokenness. Now, the reason I would say that both of those things are myths is because the Bible has something incredibly different to say. And that's where I want to get my information from. Like, I'm not so much interested in what does man say. I want to know what God says. I'm not so much interested in the perspective of CNN and the media. I want to know what my heavenly father has to say. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, now Ephesians chapter 2 is an interesting chapter in the Bible because most theologians would tell you that Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 may be some of the most important scriptures in the New Testament for the life of the believer. Uh, These are scriptures that every single one of us should know, we should wrestle with, and we should probably even have memorized, especially for times like this, especially for times when we wonder what in the heck is going on in the world and why are the things the way they are, because this is what God says. This is his word. We believe it is true. We believe it is powerful. We believe it is without error. We believe that it's life. We believe that the same breath that spoke everything into creation, into existence, is the same breath that spoke these words for us. And here's what God says, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, it's not that we have a people problem. It's not that we're all good. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses, in your sins. God says, hey, you want to know the problem in the world? You want to know why bad things happen? You want to know why there's terror and tragic events? Because we don't have a people problem. Our problem is not that we mess up, make mistakes, and sometimes get it wrong. It's not because we're good people who've had bad things done to us. Our problem is that you and I, without Jesus, we are spiritually dead. And see, what we've done with this idea of sin is we've tried to make sin about actions. We'll talk about sin is what we do. But what I would tell you from a biblical standpoint is sin is more of a condition than it is an action. We sin because of a spiritual condition. We sin because we're dead. We sin because we're sinners. Think about it this way. When you have the flu, see, you don't cough, have a tummy ache, and have snot in your nose. Therefore, you have the flu. Those are all symptoms of the flu. Because you have the flu, you have a tummy ache, a headache, and snot in your nose, right? And it's the same thing. Because we have a condition... The condition leads to the symptoms. Because we have a condition, it leads to the actions. We sin because we are sinners. Any parents in the house? You know this because you never had to teach your kids to sin, did you? Like while you were trying to teach your kids like cute words like mama and dada, like your kids' first words were like, no. Like there were times when you made your child breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and you had them all cute. You put a little bib on them because you didn't want them to spill, and, and you wanted the best for your kids. You had that nutritious, holistic meal for your kid, and you put it in front of them, and they reached over and looked you right in the eye and went, no. And you go, where did that come from? Like, because that's not what you do at the dinner table, do you, Mom? Like, when, when you're sitting down, you don't go like, oh, the peas? No. Like, you never have to teach that stuff. You never had to teach your kids to bite another human being. Like, you didn't have that classic, today I'm going to teach you how to bite other people when you're upset. 
It's in us. It's a condition in us. That because of the condition, we have certain behaviors. Because of the condition, we have certain things that we do, certain things that we're drawn to. Which means this. Behavior modification does not work. Like, I want you to hear me on this. The church is not in the business of behavior modification. Like, see, the, the, goal, the goal of following Jesus isn't so that you'll be more polite, so that you'll stop using cuss words, so that you'll have all kinds of friends and be liked by all kinds of people because you'll just be a better version of yourself. We'll just get rid of some habits, some hurts, some hang-ups, and make you a better version of yourself. Behavior modification doesn't work because if you're dead, you're dead. Nobody walks up to a rotting, course, a rotting corpse, sprays a little perfume on it, and goes, it's all good. It's all good. We've dealt with it. Maybe think of it this way. Have you ever done this before? Have you ever been hungry and you went to your refrigerator and you opened up the refrigerator and in the back of the fridge there was some, some Tupperware and in that Tupperware was some meat and we'll just use steak for this because I have the microphone and I like steak so we're going to use steak. So in the back of your refrigerator is some steak and you spot that and you think I better get that before anybody else gets that because it's steak. And so you pull it out and you open the Tupperware, but you do this thing when you open the Tupperware, it smells like death in the Tupperware. You know, it smells bad. You ever done that before? You ever opened up Tupperware and like the whole kitchen stank and you just know that thing's bad. Like that thing's bad. Now here's what you've never done. At least I hope you've never done. You've never cracked that open and had that meat smell so bad because it's rotten. So you've never thought to yourself, you know what I can do? If I put a little bit of seasoning on here, uh, maybe, if I, maybe if I fry up some mushrooms and some onions, maybe if I throw a little A1 sauce on there, it'll be all good. See, if we can cover the stench, we can eat this bad boy and it'll be okay. See, that's disgusting. Rotten meat is still disgusting no matter what you put on it. Now, here's what I know because I thought about this week. Is some of you in the back of your head, and you're probably a guy, went, did it. Like, that's meat. I'm not, have you seen the price of beef? We're not wasting that meat. And here's what you know. Even if you put more seasoning on there, all the, all the fried mushrooms, all the fried onions, all the A1 sauce, if you eat that meat, four to six hours later, you don't feel so good. And see, that's why behavior modification doesn't work. If we polish the outside, if we, if we just try to be uh, more, uh, more appropriate, more appealing to people on the outside, but we never deal with what's on the inside, it will not work. In fact... It gets worse. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Don't miss this. This is what Paul, Paul is writing this. He goes, I want you to know about your condition. He says, not only were you dead in your sins, he says, it's worse than that. He says, you were once an active, participating follower of the devil, whether you knew it or not. He said, you can only have one or two masters. You can only have one or two lords. There's only one or two things that get to oversee your lives, and either it's Jesus or it's Satan. And when you're dead in your sins, you follow Satan, whether you believe it or not. That's what he says. So when he says that you were following the prince of the power of the air, that's who he's talking about, the devil. He said you were active participant in his rebellion. That you were following him, you were shaped by him, you lived for your glory and his glory, and because of that, you were a child of God's wrath. It means that you don't deserve anything from God but hell. In fact, if you want to look into it, you can go to Isaiah chapter 14 this week, uh, verses 12 through 14. And there's five phrases that Satan uses as he rebels against God, and they're all I will phrases. He says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like God. 
And see, one of the ways you can think about sin is sin is spelled S-I-N. Sin is when I is in the center. I is when it's all about me. I is when it's all about my way, my wishes, my wants. Everything in my life is labeled with my. It's my time. It's my money. It's my resources, my recreation, my stuff. That's rebellion. So what Paul says is he uses the phrases, he says, hey, you were once sons and daughters of disobedience. That you once actively rebelled and participated in the rebellion against God because what you desired was control over your life. You wanted to control the shots. You wanted to be in charge. And in that time, in that rebellion, you actually became sons and daughters of Satan. And his spirit is at work in you, shaping you molding you, informing you, helping create your thoughts, your desires, your passions. See, here's what we know. Every single one of us was created by God to live for his glory and for his pleasure. But see, in that rebellion, in that sinful state, by nature, we don't live for his pleasure. We don't live for his glory. We live in rebellion. And, and see, I get it. You go, hey, this is, this is like, hey, man, pastor, it's supposed to be like hopeful and encouraging, and this is kind of, whew. And so we think to ourselves, well, wait a minute. I, I mean, like, you're, you're saying that we're all sinful and dead and that, but listen, we, we, like, we can do good things, and you can. Every single one of us has the capability to do good things, but when you look through the scope of rebellion against God, our good things don't look that good. I had somebody explain it this way one time. They said, if you thought that you could like kind of have a bird's eye view and you could see a group of terrorists gathering and they were going to leave that place and go blow up some innocent people. They were going to go do some bad things. And so you have a bird's eye view and you're watching this meeting and in this meeting with some card-carrying terrorist, one of the terrorists forgot to bring himself lunch because it's a lunch planning meeting. And so as you watch this, you see one of the terrorists sees another terrorist doesn't have a lunch, and what he says is, hey friend, I'll share my lunch with you. See, none of us would go home and go, you know what, that one terrorist was so nice. I mean, he shared his lunch with another terrorist. Now, would any of us call that good? Would any of us go, you know, hey man, like when you're like planning to blow something up, if you share a meal with somebody, like, that's a good deed. See, that's the same way that it seems within the context of our rebellion against God. That we do good things, but if you take into the scope our rebellion, our good things are actually like filthy rags before God who is holy, holy, holy. That when we're rebelling against him, when we're children of wrath, that the good works don't actually mean anything because we're in rebellion. We're, we're in full rebellion against our God who created us. When we do good things, they don't just seem that good. Now, here's the thing, church. We don't like to talk about this stuff. This isn't the stuff that jazzes us up. See, we, we like to get to the stuff that's like, hey, how is Jesus going to make my life better? How is Jesus going to improve my marriage? How is Jesus going to help me raise my children? How is Jesus going to help me with my finances? How is Jesus going to help me in the workplace? And listen, all of that stuff is in there. Like, I believe that Jesus will do all of those things in your life. I believe that when Jesus says that he has come so that we could have life to the full, abundant life, he means it. But none of that matters if you're dead inside. Like, you would never go to a funeral and stand in front of, of a casket with a dead person there and go, you know what he, you know what he needs right now? Man, he just needs a better marriage. You know, you know what he needs right now? He just needs some parenting tips. You know what he needs? He needs, a, he needs a better retirement plan. He needs to be a little wiser with his money. Like, you know what he needs? If he, maybe if he got promoted at work, that would change everything. You would never stand in front of a dead body and go, you know what he needs is just some different stuff. If you stood in front of a corpse, you know what you'd say is, this person needs life. And unless this person has life, none of this other stuff matters. And see, that's the same for you 
and for me. Like we can talk about all the other stuff, but the real matter at hand is are you dead in your trespasses and sins or are you alive in Christ? There's only two categories of people in the entire world, dead in sin and alive in Christ. That's it. You're either dead in your trespasses and sins or you've been made alive in Christ. And see, to truly understand, to truly treasure, I think to, to truly run after the heart of God and to worship, we have to understand what the gospel is and what the gospel means. Otherwise, we just go into this and pick and choose what we like. That we pick and choose the fluffy verses and we crochet them and hang them on the wall or we make them bumper stickers or they're really cute things to, to put on Facebook, but that's not what it means to follow Jesus. See, if we don't really understand what we're rescued from, and what we're brought into, we'll see things as burdensome and annoying. Like when things, when Jesus says, hey, take up your cross and follow me. When, when, when the scriptures say, hey, die to yourself, more of Jesus, less of you. When Jesus commands things of your life, your time, your finances, your recreation, you'll either see it as a burden or you'll see it as life and joy. And what it all comes down to is what do you believe about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for you? Think of it this way. Imagine that we've all together won a sweepstakes. And we all have won this inclusive vacation, beautiful white sandy beaches, the hotel's paid for, all the meals are included, you're not going to have to cook, clean, do any dishes, all your needs are going to be provided for. It even includes the airfare. And so we all board the plane and the thing about planes is they're not all that comfortable unless you can afford first class. And by the way, none of us won first class. So we're all back in economy. And if you're tall, there's not enough leg room. Especially if you get the person in front of you that's that, that traditional kind of person who likes to put the seat all the way back. So that means like you have another person like here your whole ride. So imagine you're, we all get put in. It's a full plane. We're all, we're all kind of smashed. And let's just imagine, because these are free tickets, we're in the back of the plane where it's loud and noisy and cramped. And imagine if the stewardess came up to you and said, hey, uh, I, I got to put a couple things under your seat. I, I know that's going to create your legs to be even more cramped, but I, I got to shove some stuff under your seat. So she shoves some stuff under your seat. Now you have even less leg room. And you're thinking, I don't know. Like, is it worth this free vacation? Because now I'm really uncomfortable. Things aren't going so good. Now imagine this. Imagine that just as we take off, the stewardess walks up to you and she says, Sir, uh, you know the thing that I, I put under your, your seat earlier? That's a parachute. In fact, would you, would you be willing to reach under your seat and put the parachute on your lap? And now you're holding that parachute and you're going, man, this is kind of big and bulky and I'm cramped and it's heavy. And this is like, I just wanted to catch up on my Netflix. Like I was hoping to catch up on my reading. Like I got a podcast. Like I just want to take a nap and I got to hold this thing. See, it's inconvenient. Until that same stewardess walks up to you and says, hey, sir, uh, the reason I gave you that parachute is because we just found out that this, this, there's been a mistake. This plane only has enough fuel to go for 30 minutes, and then we're going to crash. And so we, what we did is we just gave everybody a parachute. See, before, it's an inconvenience. The minute you find out that the plane's about to crash and you have a parachute, that parachute becomes your most prized possession. It's no longer an annoyance. It is now something you are very thankful for. It's no longer a burden, it's a joy. I don't miss this. In that moment, if you knew for sure the plane was going down, 30 minutes is all you got, and if you knew that every single person on the plane had a parachute under their seat and they didn't know about it, you know what you would become? You would become the world's greatest and loudest parachute salesman on that airplane. You'd stand up, right? Hey, everybody, listen, I got an announcement. Under your seat, that thing that's been cramping you, that thing that's been burdensome to you, it's a parachute. You know why you need the parachute? Because the plane is going down. 
And everybody would be like, man, I'm so thankful that guy told me or that, that gal told me because the plane is going down and now I have a parachute. And because I have a parachute, we can jump off of the plane. And I've always thought about parachuting anyway, but I didn't want to pay for it. So now I get to do it for free. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to parachute to safety. Thank God somebody told me there was a parachute under my seat. See, the gospel becomes a burden if we don't fully understand what we've been saved from and what we've been brought in to. Uh, see, the reason I think the church doesn't treasure the gospel, I think the reason that we don't share it loudly, boldly, constantly, consistently with other people is because we've lost sight of what we've been saved from and what we've been brought in to. Uh, no, no secret to those of you that have been around the church for a while. I'm bivocational, so I work for Redemption Church, getting this thing started and off the ground and seeing lives changed by Jesus and disciples made. And I also work here at the YMCA. Uh, my goal is at some point is not to be able to work at the YMCA and work full-time for the church, but for now I, I'm also here at the YMCA. And this week I'm up at the desk finishing up my work, trying to get home. And, and this woman comes up to the front desk who comes up to the front desk all the time. But this time she's like super excited, super excited. Like I realized I wasn't going to get my work done because she was so excited and there was something she had to tell me. And what she had to tell me was two things. The first thing was, this was on Friday, she told me how excited she was that there's a new donut shop in town. And like she had already gone to the new donut shop and it's incredible and it's amazing and the donuts are wonderful. She even told me that there's vanilla donuts with fruity pebbles on there and they are to die for. And then she told me that Belvedere, because she read this in the newspaper, is getting three places on Buchanan Street to eat seafood. And how excited she is because now her sushi options in Belvedere have tripled. And see, my, my first thought was this. My first thought was, does Belvedere really need three places to eat seafood? Like, I just, I'm just wondering, maybe, maybe, maybe there's that big of a demand. I don't know about you, but I don't eat raw fish. That's just not my thing. Uh, there's, if you've ever seen the movie where Tom Hanks is on the island, his plane crashes, Castaway, there's a scene where he has fire. This bothers me. I have nightmares about it. There's a scene where Tom Hanks has fire, but he eats the fish raw. And I'm like, fish, fire, Okay. But I'm like, brother, why are we eating raw fish? You, you have a fire right there. Raw fish isn't my thing. But we have three opportunities now to get some wasabi and some spring rolls and some tuna wrapped in. I mean, we have that. And here's what I thought. My second thought was this, is I thought, I wish Christians were excited about sharing the gospel as this woman is about telling me about a new donut shop and three seafood places. Because I'll tell you what, she was an evangelist. When it came to donuts and seafood, she was going to let every single person she knew, if you wanted coffee and donuts, she knew the spot. And if you wanted to get some new raw fish in your belly, there's places coming. See, when we truly understand the gospel, it's not a burden. It's life-altering, life-giving joy. I don't know, because I'm kind of a Bible nerd, so I'm into this stuff, but uh, this October marks the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. So Martin Luther nails the 500 theses on the door of the Catholic Church, which changes everything. And I love following the guys who were reformers, guys that kind of led us to knowing that the Bible is the word of God, that what we need is Jesus. And one of my favorite teachers and preachers is a guy named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And because we're in that Reformation October month, I've been reading guys who are dead and theologians, because I like those guys, and he says it this way. He says, when we think too lightly of our sin, we also think too lightly of our Savior. So see, when we diminish sin, and go, hey, it's not really that big of a deal, what we really do is we diminish our sin. It means we diminish Jesus who came to rescue us from our sin. And see, the reason that we have to talk about sin, the reason we have to talk about being dead in our sins and trespasses is because if we truly know what kind of shape we were in or we are in, then it magnifies for us the beauty and the gloriness and the majesty of Jesus who came to rescue us. And here's what the Bible says. If you ever want to know why bad things happen, if you ever want to know why politics are the way they are, if you ever want to know why nations and neighbors can't get along, it's because of this. Every single person 
if not for Jesus Christ, is dead in their sin, a child of wrath, a son or daughter of disobedience, and on your best day, you are under the influence of the devil, shaping your thoughts, your desires, your words, your motives, your passions, everything. And see, church, here's what we have to know. This is what we have to remember every single day is we do not need to be improved, edited, updated, rebooted, or enhanced. What we need to be is forgiven, restored, redeemed, and resurrected. What we need to be is saved. See, sin doesn't, like, knock us down to God's junior varsity team. It doesn't, like, put us in timeout or probation. It doesn't put us on a slower track to getting a mansion in heaven. Sin wipes us out. Sin has killed us. Sin destroys us. We don't need a Jesus who comes as a life coach, who helps us to turn over a new leaf to get a second chance to make us a better version of ourselves and to obtain all our wants, our dreams, and desires. What we need is a resurrected Savior who can kill my son, make me new, and give me new life because he accomplished it and overcame the cross and rose again in the empty tomb, defeating our sin, Satan, and death. See, verses 1 to 3 is a lot of bad news. And here's the thing. The scripture could stop right there, and God would still be good. He'd still be right, and he'd still be righteous. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, is probably the largest and most powerful conjunction ever uttered. It's what the theologian and teacher John Stott calls the greatest two syllables ever spoken in the English language, and it's this, but God. Paul starts with where we are, what we deserve, the condition of our heart, and here's the two powerful words, and I want you to, I want you to think about this. I want you to meditate on this. I want you to put this in your journals and store it away in your hearts, but God. See, what Paul reveals to every single one of us is we're helpless, but we're not hopeless. That there's nothing we can do about our condition but God. See, there's nothing that we can fix but God is our hope. But there's something that that God wants to do. And church, here's what I want you to know. I want you to label yourself this way. I didn't think about this until this morning. Otherwise, I would have made you all personal business cards and gave them to you. But church, we are in the business of hope. Like every single one of you, I want you to think about this. You are wherever you go in your home, in your neighborhood, on the sports team, in that high school, in that classroom, in that meeting at work with your coworkers that you're around. You are a dealer of hope. That just by definition and function, a Christ follower is an agent of hope. And here's where we get the hope. But God that we can look into people's lives, we can look into people's situations, we can look into the darkness of the world and go, I understand that that's all true, I understand that that's all real, I understand that that's all heavy, I understand that's all painful, but can I tell you something? But God, that even though you might feel helpless, you are not hopeless. But God. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4, it says, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Salvation is birthed out of God's great love for us. He loves you, and it bothers him It bothers God to see us in the condition of dead. And see, sometimes I think maybe because we're around the scripture so much, or maybe because we've heard it so many times, what happens is we forget the severity of it. That we, when we are dead in our sins and trespasses, what the scripture says is that we are children of wrath, that we were literally enemies of God that we had gone so far against him that we chose our sin, that we are part of the rebellion. And yet in that state, 
before you ever loved God, before you ever had thoughts about God, before you'd ever turned your heart towards him, he chose to love you. That's why when the Bible says love your enemies as yourself, you go, why would it say that? Because that's the heart of God. That God loves people who don't always love him in return. That God loves people who rebel against him and run from him. And the reason he loves them is because he wants to see those who are dead come back to life in Jesus. Martin Luther says it this way. He says, if I was God and the world treated me as it has him, I would have kicked the vile, wretched things to pieces. See, sometimes I think, well, I think, I think sometimes I go, well, wait a minute, how come, like, how come there's this whole salvation thing? Why, why can't God just, like, just forgive us? Why can't God just clear the slate? Like, why can't God just choose to oversee our sinfulness and our brokenness? It's because God is holy, 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 and we've rebelled and we've sinned, and there's a debt that is owed. There's things that need to be paid. That, well, there's bondage that has to be broken, and Jesus does all of those things on our behalf, in our place, for us. I heard somebody say this week that until the gospel seems too good to be true, you haven't really understood it. Until the gospel seems too good to be true, you have not truly understood it. And these two words should bring us so much joy. These two words should bring us so much comfort, but God See, if you really wanted to sum up the gospel in four easy words, you could do it this way. The gospel in four words is this, Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. That he lived the life that we were supposed to live. He then died the death that we're condemned to. That Jesus was treated by his father is a follower of Satan, is a son of disobedience, is a child of wrath, and he bore our sin in our place. That Jesus didn't just die for us, Jesus died instead of us. The gospel is that Jesus lives the life that we're supposed to live. He dies the death that we deserve so that we don't have to, and then he offers us something. Like, wouldn't Jesus still be good if he just took the, the burden, if he just took our condemnation, if he just took the consequences for our sin? Wouldn't he still be good? But he does more than that. Verse 5. But by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. See, it's not that just Jesus goes in our place and dies in our place for our sin, but he also gives us something. The forgiveness is that Jesus takes our debt, he takes our burden, and then he gives us his righteousness. That it's not that the, it's not that the scale has just been set back to zero. It's not like, hey, I'm good because I'm, I'm just at zero. It's that you are given the righteousness of Jesus. The big theological word is Jesus imputes his righteousness upon you. Which means this. When God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. That, that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that you have already been elevated in Christ. That when your heavenly father looks at you, it's as though you are already seated with Jesus at his right hand. So when you go before God in prayer, it's not based on your good works. It's not based on your merits. It's not based on the kind of week you've had. God hears your prayers because he hears the prayers of Jesus and you have the righteousness of Jesus. You can have a fully functioning relationship with God where you are accepted, loved, and fully adopted because Jesus is the Son of God. That you are secure because there's nothing that can separate God and Jesus. And so nothing can separate you because you have the righteousness of Christ in you and you're already seated in the heavenly places at his right time. That God is always with you. See, the reason that's important is because sometimes we come into this place on a Sunday morning and we try to earn ourselves back to God based on the week we had. 
So we'll come in and we'll try to negotiate with God. Hey, God, I'm going to say a few prayers. Hey, I'll sing a little bit louder during worship today. Hey, God, I'm going to, I'll try to get in the word more this week, God, because I want to earn your favor. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that you have been saved and redeemed and Christ is in you and you've been made alive in him. You are fully loved, fully accepted, sons and daughters of God. Now, because I really want us to get this, there's three things I want to close with this morning. I think there's three things that, that Paul is leading us to. Three things we have to know. First one is this. The basis of salvation is grace. The basis of salvation is grace. Twice in this short passage, Paul uses this phrase, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Why do you think Paul said it twice? Because he wanted you to know it wasn't about you and it's not about me. He's like, hey, it's by grace. It's by grace. Now, I want you to see this. We're, we're going to put up uh, the same scripture with a, a different slide. And I want you to see the word this. It's highlighted in green. Now, I want you to see this because the verbiage in the Greek by grace, you have been saved, is passive. What it means is this. It means that this force is being done to you. You're not achieving it. You're not accomplishing it. It's being done to you. It's not a reward for your good behavior. It's not because you were less bad or you were a little bit better than the next guy. It's not even because you had great potential in your life. Now, don't miss this. It's not even a reward for your faith. See, we as Christians confuse this all the time, but I want you to see that little green word, this. And honestly, the word's a little bit hard to describe in English. But what that word, this, does is it points back to both salvation and faith. So when Paul says, for by grace you have been saved and through faith, and then when he says, and this, what this is, is both saved and faith. Because I want you to know that your salvation is a gift of God and the faith you have is a gift of God. Both of those, salvation and faith, are gifts that God gives you. Salvation is a work of God from the very beginning all the way till the very end. Now, sometimes we'll, we'll talk about the gospel this way. We'll talk about, hey, I was drowning in the sea of life. You ever heard this one before? I was drowning in the sea of life and Jesus is like the Coast Guard. Jesus rolls up on his boat, and because it's Jesus, you know, it's a nice boat. And he threw a life vest out to me, and he pulled me on board, and he saved me. We've used that before. We talk about, hey, I was drowning in my sin, and Jesus rolls up, and he throws me a life jacket, and he pulls me in, and he saves me. That's cute, but it's not the gospel. See, the gospel would say it this way. It would say that I was drowning in my sin, and it wasn't just that I was drowning, but I was dead. I was floating upside down, no consciousness, no life. I was dead in my sin. And Jesus not only rolled up into the boat, but he jumped into the water. He pulls me back on the boat, and he begins to bring breath and life back into my lungs. That He breathes eternal life into my lungs because I was dead, and he resurrects me from death and brings me back to life. That is the gospel. Salvation is a means of grace. It's not about you. It's not about me. That also means that there's no one outside of God's grace. There's no one that's gone too far. There's no one that's sinned too much. There's no one that, that ran too far away that God can save anyone because it's not about us. It's about him. The second thing is this. The instrument of salvation is faith. So grace is the means. Faith is the instrument. The instrument of salvation is faith. This is really important because sometimes I think in the Christian world we confuse faith. How, well, the best way that I think we, we talk about faith as Christians is it's kind of like the force in Star Wars. The faith is kind of like this force that we try to muster up. Maybe, maybe you've been in certain circles that so maybe someone's told me before, you need to have more faith. 
You need to have a stronger faith. And we, we talk about this, this thing as kind of like this force or this feeling that, that we can begin to just kind of muster up or grow in our own lives. The best way to describe faith is like this. Faith is the hand that takes hold of Jesus. Faith is the hand that takes hold of Jesus. The best picture of this is the Old Testament. The Old Testament, you would literally, literally, you would go to the temple and you would bring an animal, a sacrificial lamb, pure, blameless, spotless, the best of the best. And you would stand before the the priest and the priest would take the lamb and put it on the altar. And as the lamb was on the altar, you would literally, as the head of the household, you would reach out your hand and put it on the head of the lamb. And when you were given instruction, you would begin to confess your sin. And so you'd begin to just confess all the sins you've committed, all the wrong you've done, your need for God. And then the priest would sacrifice the lamb while your hand was still on the lamb. And what it represented was is your hand was on the head representing that all your sin had been transferred from you onto the lamb. That, that all that you would put your trust in, because God, you said to do this, because this is your instruction, I take hold of this, and I believe that my sin is being transferred onto the lamb. And that's what we do through faith. In faith, we reach out and we say, hey, Jesus, I believe it's you. Hey, I'm transferring all my sin from me to you, and because your word says I'm allowing you to, to put all your righteousness into me. That there's this great exchange that happens that, hey, Jesus, you take what's worst about me, you take the sin, you take everything that separates me from your heavenly Father and from you, and you give me your righteousness, you give me your goodness, you say that you'll put your Holy Spirit inside of me, and I receive that through faith. That it's in faith that we just say boldly, Jesus, you are my blessed assurance. You are my Savior. I trust in you, I rest in you, and my... My belief is that I'm saved not by me, but by you. Last but not least, what Paul says is that the fruit of our salvation is good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Now, don't miss this. You are not saved by your works. You can't do it. But when God saves you, he unites you to Christ and begins to infuse his life and his power into you. You cannot experience the power of the grace of God, be infused with the power of the Holy Spirit, and not do good works. Don't miss this. What Paul is saying is your salvation leads to good works. The good works aren't the basis by which we're saved. They are the fruits from our salvation. Maybe think about it this way. If I was maybe late to church one Sunday, and I walked in and said, guys, I'm so sorry that I was late. I had a meeting yesterday. I was in the city of Chicago, and I had to find a place to park my car. And so I parked my car, and I went into the meeting. And on the, on the way out from the meeting, like it was, there was a really tall building, and there were condos on the top. And, and somebody was lifting a piano. There was a company lifting a piano up like 30 stories. And they were going to take that piano in through a window because that's the only way they can do it in the city. And you know what happened? Just like in the old Tom and Jerry cartoons, the piano fell on me. And like it fell 30 stories and it's just like it squished me to the ground like a pancake. Like it damaged my car. And so like I had to, I had to take a, a, few, a, a few hours just to get better. But like I'm here now, so sorry for being late. But I, was, I had a grand piano dropped on my head yesterday. That's why I was late. You know what you would say? Liar. Liar. Pastor's a liar. And you know why you would say that? Because you cannot experience that kind of force in your life and stay the same. Like if you have a piano drop down you, like in the old Tom and Jerry cartoons, you'll look different, you'll walk different, you'll talk different, you'll be different. And see, the whole reason I bring that up is because the same is true for Christ. When you experience that kind of force in your life, when you experience the saving grace of God, when you experience that kind of power, the power of resurrection in your life, 
You look different. You talk different. You walk different. And you're never the same. And maybe the best way to say it is like this. Resurrected people don't live their lives offering the one that resurrected them a golf clap. You ever watch people play golf? It's boring. Boring. And like a golfer can hit like a goal in one, and people are like, wow, that was awesome. Listen, if I hit a hole in one, I want to hear some shouting, some yelling. Like my favorite style of golfing is Happy Gilmore style. And see, I think it's a sin for people who claim to be loved, forgiven, and and set free by Jesus to live their lives being like, that Jesus gave him a golf clap. Man, isn't he good? That when you experience the power and the force of Jesus, Paul says that you were created for the purpose of that your salvation leads to good works. At the most basic level, the most basic level, it means that we abide in Jesus, that we walk according to the Holy Spirit, that we hear the word of God and we obey the word of God, that we do what Jesus demands with our lives, our energy, our money, our commitment, that even when it seems absurd or unfair, even when it seems hard, we constantly and consistently surrender our independence and our pride and we live wanting to be more and more like Jesus because it's Jesus that we're alive in. And that we do good works, not because we just go, hey, I'm just going to work, 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 but because the Spirit of God is inside of me. He saved me, and that leads me to do good works. And friends, you know what I think the greatest work on the planet is? Letting people who know that they're dead in their trespasses, that there is a God who loves them and sent his son in their place to die for them on the cross so that they wouldn't have to die because he wanted to give them life and life to the full. I think the greatest work we can do in all the world is to be dealers of hope, to let people know who think they're helpless, that they are helpless, but there is hope, and his name is Jesus. Thanks again for listening to this message from Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois, where we believe faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. Listen again next week, but in the meantime, visit us at redemption.cc.